Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the channel, my name is Jay. I'm an investor just looking for the smartest home for my cash. If that sounds like you, I think you're going to like what we do here. Now, my guest today is Louis Vincent Gov. He's the founder of GavCal Research, uh, an investor, money manager, and brilliant mind. I love when I get the chance to speak with Louis, and today was no exception. We covered a ton of ground. We began talking about rates, energy, and inflation. We use that to segue into the de-dollarization of certain economies around the world and how they are intending to manage this and the implications of that. We talked about deglobalization and why Louis says that's the wrong word. This isn't deglobalization, and the winners of this, uh, not deglobalization, but similar, are not going to be the U.S., not going to be China, not going to be Russia. It's going to be the countries on the margin, the Indonesias, the Vietnams, the Mexicos, the Brazils. Uh, very interesting perspective, and I always appreciate his take and his time. I know you're going to love this one. As always, right beneath this piece of content, there's a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I publish every Sunday. I absolutely love writing it. Over 40,000 investors hear from me each week. I get great feedback as we dive into the biases, heuristics, and blind spots. I cover investor psychology in my weekly op-ed, and I love writing it. Also, special announcement. In, it, in response to the overwhelming uh, questions we've had from subscribers over the last 18 months asking, how do I get started investing in the commodities industry? We've put together a 10-chapter video course called The Commodity University for anybody who's beginning their commodity investor journey. We start with the absolute fundamentals and get all the way through to portfolio construction. Hit up thecommodityuniversity.com. We're launching this course in a couple days. I'm super excited about it. Here is Louis Vincent Gav. Enjoy. All right, here I am with Louis Vincent Gav. Louis, it's great to have you back in the program. I appreciate you making the time. My pleasure. It's uh, it's good to be here. I'm noticing you're you're you don't have my book behind you. I, I need to send you a copy. You do all all nine of them, Louis. I'll put them in their own <laughs> shelf here, man. I'll do it. Nice, <laughs> nice. I'll do that. You know, that's a separate conversation. I'm I'm so curious <laughs> how you find the time to write so much, given your your work and like your travel schedule. Right before we record, I think you listed three continents you had just gotten back from over the course of the summer. But how you find time to write so much is very impressive, my friend. Very in impressive. the plane. Right there. On the plane. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Hit airplane mode and go for it. Okay. Uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. A uh, handful of directions I want to go. I figured since today, just for context, is September 20th. And, uh, you know, we had a, a rate announcement today or sort of non-announcement, I guess you'd say. They're holding yeah. rates steady. Um, let's start with that because I've noticed a shift in the sentiment from the guests I have on my show over the last six months. Now, what I mean is six months ago, Everybody seemed quite certain that the Fed was going to pivot, you know, within 18 months or something like this, like near term. And it wasn't so much a matter of if they would, it was a matter of when. And the when always seemed to land within like a year or two. But I'm 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 seeing that conversation evaporate a little bit. And the higher for longer conversation is becoming more dominant. Um, you know, I had a great chat with Jim Grant last week and he walked me through you know, his thoughts on rate cycles and how they tend to move almost generationally, like 40-year trends, um, and that any hope of a return to zero uh, the next couple of years is just is just false. But where do you land, Louis? What do you think? 
Uh, well, let me first say you're very lucky to get Jim Grant. I think he's uh, he's one of the not only one of the smartest brains in the world of finance. I I think he's probably the best writer in the English language alive today. Um, I uh, I whenever his newsletter drops every two weeks, I I drop everything and read it. So, um, so I didn't know you interviewed him two weeks ago, but I'm I'm going to go out and. Uh, and look for that interview. And now I'm sort of intimidated uh, to come right after, <laughs> right after Jim to talk, to talk about the same topic. Um, because uh, obviously uh, Jim Grant has forgotten more about interest rates probably in the past week than I could hope to, to know in a lifetime. Um, so look, I, my, my take on interest rates is, uh, is, is actually pretty simple. Um, and that is that, um, you know, we're now in a structurally higher inflationary environment. Um, and I think we're in a structurally higher inflationary environment, not by accident, but by design. You know, I, you know, the Fed has, I don't know, 800 PH, economics PhD who work there. I think most of them knew that if they ran M2 growth for 18 months at 26% year on year, while simul simultaneously running budget deficits of eight, nine, 10% of GDP, um, that, you know, these are the conditions where you're always going to end up with inflation. And so, so here we are now, the fed, I think wanted the higher inflation. It didn't want the 8%. It wanted the three, four, five, because that's how you deal with the overwhelming, the, the overhanging debt issue that, uh, that we have in most uh, Western countries today. Um, you know, when you look at debt to GDPs of over 100%, uh, the only way you you get that ratio back down is either through some kind of default and restructuring, which is you know not doable, or you eat away at it through inflation, which was the history of the 1950s, 60s, 70s. Through that period, you know, inflation was always structurally higher than than interest rates, um, and I think that was the the, the where the Fed wanted to go to it. The, they went too far. Now they've got inflation uh, sort of back to more reasonable levels of three, four percent, which is where they really want to be. Now they, they can't come out and say, "Hey, you know, we really want three or four percent inflation." They're going to keep pretending and say, "Hey, we want two percent." Um, but really, I think they're more or less where they want to be. So I, th I think the Fed is pretty much done here. Um, the question, the only question, open-ended question for me is. Do we get a fiscal tightening looking ahead or not? Uh, do we continue to have full employment in the U.S. with budget deficits of 8% of GDP, which, you know, if you told me that a few years ago, I would have said that was not mathematically possible, but yet here we are. Um, do we continue having basically governments that that spend money like drunken sailors on shore leave? Um, and if we do, then inflation, central banks, you know, We'll be hard pressed to keep inflation below four or five. If we get some kind of fiscal tightening, which right now there's absolutely no sign of, to be very clear, then you can hope that inflation goes back to the three three percent. But yeah, I think I think the Fed is pretty much done. Uh, it's itching to to declare victory, um, and and or basically pass the buck now onto the governments and say, look, monetary policy has done the job. It's now up to fiscal policy. So. Would I am I jumping to a conclusion then when I just make the assumption that because energy prices are climbing right now and the Saudis and the Russians extended their cuts and the shale has kind of rolled over a little bit, that we can just expect higher prices of everything, you know, six months down the road because oil is the one input 
required for anything that you want, whether you're growing, manufacturing, et cetera, uh, would this not point to general inflation, you know, one, yes. two quarters forward, three quarters forward. And then, and then if the Fed says we want 2%, but we're sitting at three or four now, energy prices are climbing, inflation should climb, you know, uh, a few yeah. quarters later. Absolutely. Okay. No, no, I like absolutely. My starting point in all my research is that economic activity is energy transformed and that, you know, that the price of energy matters tremendously. Um, now, I think what you're seeing right now is the consequence of many things. So you, you mentioned, of course, the geopolitics uh, aspect of it, what Saudi Arabia is doing, what Russia is doing. And, and that's, of course, of great importance. But let's not kid ourselves that the, the creep higher in energy prices is also the direct consequence of our own energy policies over the past 10 years. For, for the past 10 years, we've promoted investments in alternative energy and we've penalized investments in carbon energy. Now, 10 years later, you know, we've spent $4 trillion in wind and solar and we've gone from 83% carbon-based to 81% carbon-based. Base in 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 our in our mix, so that four trillion has been basically pissed away. Um, it's been capital malinvestment on an epic scale, and you know how do you pay for capital malinvestment? Um, you know, I, I think typically it's it, it triggers inflation. If if you make a bunch of investments, you you waste capital on things that aren't productive, which is exactly what we've done on energy. Um, you know, down the road you pay the piper. Uh, and th this is where we are today. We're now in the phase of the cycle where investors are realizing, oh my God, all these productivity gains we hoped for in alternative energy, they're not there. And so you're seeing an absolute collapse in the share price of anything linked to alternative energy. And on the other side, a rise in the energy prices. Um, as I think it's dawning on market participants that uh, you know, we, we've made ourselves a pretty muddy bed and now we have to lay in it and sleep in it. Um, so the, you're absolutely right that, you know, the energy equation is, is the, the, the one big, uh, stumbling block on this view that, oh, well, maybe inflation goes back down to 3% and we sort of muddle through and the Fed can't, won't do very much. Um, and we can, you know, get on with our lives. Uh, that's why I've, I've argued, and I think I argued this in our podcast we did, what was it, six months ago, maybe? Um, and I've argued in any podcast that I do that the ultimate diversification for your equity portfolios you know, your your listeners may like Microsoft or maybe they like Alibaba, maybe they like LVMH, whatever stock they like. In the old days, you bought a bond to hedge against uncertainty. You bought a US Treasury, you bought a Canadian government bond, you bought a German bond to, to hedge against a potential shock. Forget that. Today, you had need energy positions because the big Damocles sword hanging over our heads is that energy prices spike up. Um, so, you know, you might have the companies that you like, the investments that you like, but what will completely derail your investment thesis is if oil goes to 150 bucks. Um, and please note, I'm not saying oil is going to 150 bucks. I'm saying that's the risk today in the market. Um, it's a risk that is very high given the malinvestments we've made on the energy space. It's a risk that's very high given the geopoliticals, the geopolitical situation right now. So uh, you need to cushion your portfolio against an oil potential oil spike to 150 bucks. And again, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying that's the risk you're running. What are the preventative steps? Are there preventative steps? Better question. 
that the U.S. could take to protect energy prices from getting that high? You know, we can drain the SPR so much. Is there anything else at their disposal, Louis, that would strike you as significant? Well, the SPR is back to the level it was in 1986, um, you know, when when global oil consumption uh, was less than two-thirds of what it is today. Um, so, you know, the, the ability of the U.S., I think there's, there's about 350 million barrels left in the SPR. You need to keep at any one time 200 million barrels. Like that's sort of your bare minimum in case, yeah. you know, you have hurricanes or war or whatever. Like you don't want to go below 200 million. So really you're dealing, and by the way, you're at 650 million a year ago, right? So you, you've you've right. already drained three, 300 million uh, over the past year, you can probably do another 150 million. So at, at the current pace, it probably gets you through the next four or five months at the current pace of releasing because they're releasing between 30 and 50 million barrels a month. So, so come, you know, come the end of this winter or even the middle of the winter, if you continue to release at this point, you're done with the SPR. So yeah, what, what can you do? You can try to mend your relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, but I think right now, Saudi Arabia has little interest in, in talking to president Biden. Um, Granted, if tomorrow, uh, you know, President Trump comes back, President Trump and MBS have a very close personal relationship. So, so Saudi Arabia could could be leaned on at that time potentially, uh, but that's not for another uh, 15, 16 months, right? Uh, first, you need the election, and then you've got the transition. Um, so, you know, what else can you do? You can, you know, stop the sanctions against Venezuela, but. There again, you know, it's not like Venezuela can just turn it on. You have no more oil engineers in, in Venezuela. You have no more oil platforms. Um, to be honest, I think the, the lowest hanging fruit of the you're the U.S. and you start worrying about the oil price is you stop being such a knucklehead and you actually approve the Keystone pipeline, um, and you uh, do everything you can to bring more Canadian oil in, into your own market uh, because, you know, that is the one part of the world where perhaps you can crank up production somewhat decently quickly. Uh, it's, it's right here in Canada. You, you, you still have the oil engineers, you have the infrastructure, you have a sound legal uh, system where you, you can feel comfortable deploying, you know, quickly hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to crank up production. But, but there's really no sign of that happening. So, you know, the, the, the risk again, it's a big Damocles sword over our heads. Yeah, it's almost like there, there's there's a couple of problems politicians have to face both in Canada and the U.S. now. It's a problem that they they created by villainizing the oil sector so much over the last five, 10 years, right? It's almost like nuclear 10 years ago, you know, and they've made these promises. Now they're backing out of them. Okay, so- I Well, you know, on this, I was told, I don't know if it's true. It's probably not true, but I was told that- there's there's a plague in the German Defense Ministry's office that says never again will we fight a war on two fronts, um, because you know fight, fighting wars on two fronts is yeah, it's a recipe for disaster. I think in recent years we've decided we're going to fight a war against the Russian, we're going to fight a war against the Chinese, and we're going to fight a war um, against climate change, um, and we're going to do all this while also basically snubbing uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and and telling that we don't like them because, you know, the whole mantra of the Biden administration has been that, uh, and, you know, it's, it's 
humanly, it's a it's, it's a worthwhile mantra, but their, their mantra has been that there's two kinds of countries. There's democracies, and the U.S. can be friends with democracies. But if you're not a democracy, then the U.S. has no interest in being a friend with you. Um, that's been the mantra, the foreign policy driver of, of the um, of the Biden administration. And it's, you know, it's, it's beautiful, it's idealistic and everything. But the reality is, you know, we live in a world where a lot of the oil is produced in non-democratic uh, countries. Uh, you know, it's produced in Saudi yeah. Arabia, it's produced in the UAE. It's, and so it's like, how many fights do you want to pick at the same time? Um, and, you know, you, you have to prioritize your fights. In World War II, we decided we, the Western world, we're, we're fighting Germany and we did a deal with Stalin uh, and we did a deal with Mao to, to fight Japan and to fight, to fight Germany, even though, you know, Stalin was definitely no choir boy and now neither was Mao Zedong. Um, but here, I think there's a certain level of hubris where we think we can take on all these challenges all at the same time uh, with fairly little consequences. Um, and I think this year is the year where we're finding out that actually we can't. We, we, you have to pick your battles. Uh, you can't fight every battle at the same time. Yeah, I, I can't help but assume or think that part of that is a symptom, specifically in the U.S., of an election cycle every two years. And you can't fight all these challenges at the same time. Well, you're never actually going to fight them, right? You're just making promises to get to get reelected. You're thinking in two year time horizon. It's very short. Um, and so, of course, you promise the world. You promise all kinds of things because chances are. You're not going to be the one who's going to have to deliver. I mean, in Canada, it's kind of that way. It's uh, we're making promises for 2035 and 2050 that, that uh, you know, Trudeau's not going to. It be might, there. yeah, it might be. You know what? From your lips to God's ears on Trudeau not being there, um, but <laughs> but uh, the um, um, you know, in terms of you know, is it linked to, to democracy? You know, the U.S. has always had this system, and I think the U.S. was better in the past at uh, at picking and choosing its battles. Um, I, I, I'm not sure it's linked to to democracy per se, as the old story that you know absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you know, for for a long time, the U.S. was the the sole uni power in the world for a period of 25 years. Um, and during that period, you learn to not compromise. You learn to, it's my way or the highway. And you learn, I think it, the hubris just ends up feeding on itself. And, and, I, I, and now, you know, the bill for that hubris is just coming due. What, what do you make, sticking with energy here, what do you make of Russia's plans to sell gas to China at 50% the cost it will sell to Europe? Look, I think uh, economic activity is energy transformed. Uh, that you know that that's the starting point of a lot of what I do in my research. And if you start off with that idea, whoever has the cheap cost of energy, it doesn't mean that they win, but they start off you know ahead in the global economic race. Now, if you start you know start on that premise, um, the past fifteen years, the U.S. had a massive comparative advantage. And that comparative advantage was, you know, with the Shell Revolution, the U.S. had cheap natural gas, plentiful oil, uh, and a cheaper cost of energy than anybody else. So, you know, the chemical industry moved to the U.S. and um, and anything that was energy intensive moved moved to the U.S. Now, you know, what you're now seeing is, is as you project yourself forward with these kinds of deals, I think in in 
the future, it will be, or in the coming years, it, basically the message that Russia is sending out is, look, whoever's willing to trade with us will have a cheap cost of energy. Um, in fact, even, even stronger than that, not only will we sell them cheap energy, but we'll sell them energy in their own currency. Uh, which is, you know, the biggest comparative advantage there is, right? At being able to buy and settle your commodity needs in your own currencies basically means you get them for free. If you're China, you can now buy your oil, your copper, your iron ore, your natural gas in renminbi. You can always print the renminbi. So all of a sudden you have no more constraint to your growth. Same, same story if you're India. Same story if you're Indonesia, Brazil. You know, all these countries that are now buying fertilizer and coal and whatever else from from russia and paying for it in their own currency it's a game changer for them uh it's an absolute game changer so to to answer your question today you know everybody is bared up as can be on china um china's supposed to be imploding like hardly a week goes by where you don't have a cover of the economist business week etc telling you china's yeah. imploding meanwhile if you take a step back you think hold on china's energy costs are collapsing even as everybody else is are rising number one Number two, China's trade surplus has just gone from 30 billion a month to 80 billion a month um, as it as it buys more and more commodities from Russia in its own currency, and that Russia then has no choice but to use that money to buy things made in China, whether cars, earth-moving equipment, et cetera. So China's trade surplus goes ballistic. Um, you know, to me, that doesn't spell immediate doom. Now, this isn't to say that there aren't challenges in China. There's big challenges. But let's take a step back and take a deep breath. You know, countries who get cheaper energy and who run trade surpluses of, you know, almost a trillion US dollars a year, uh, you know, a trillion US dollars, if, if China's trade surplus was a country, it would be in the G20 to put things in perspective. Like there's only, right. I think, 18, 18 countries that have a GDP, an annual GDP of over a trillion dollars. China's trade surplus is a trillion dollars. So, you know, it's, it's, um, China already has some comparative advantages, but the fact that it now has cheaper energy than everybody else, uh, you know, that's all the more so. Yeah. I mean, it kind of brings us back to the front end of this conversation. The price of energy determines the price of a lot. Uh, nope. The deal makes sense Absolutely. to me from a Chinese standpoint, because yes, you can sell uh, oil and gas to the Chinese for renminbi, turn around and buy whatever Chinese goods you might need, which is a lot, rare earths, whatever. But what are you supposed to do if you're sitting on a pile of rupees or Indonesian rupees? Like what, what, is, what happens with that currency, Louis? What do you think is the transaction there? And how do they get that thing yeah. back to gold or back to... Exactly. I don't know if you saw. I don't know if you saw, uh, but uh, you know Lavrov, the 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 Russian foreign minister, uh, he was in India. I think I can't remember if it was June or July, uh, and he made that very point. He said, "Look, we keep buying. We keep like earning all these rupees. We're selling you a ton of oil. We're selling you iron ore. You're giving us rupees. You got to give us something we can buy with these rupees." And in essence, India's answer to this has been, "Well, you know, it's our currency and your problem, kind of thing." Um, and I think here India is being very, very short-sighted because um, on the other side, China's done a number of things. First, it's done something that India still refuses to do, which is open up its bond market to foreign investors. Um, so now if I'm Russia and I earn a bunch of renminbi, my first option is I got a, I can buy a ton of goods that China produces and that I may want, you know, automobiles, earth-moving equipment, telecom switches, 
uh, high-speed trains, you, you name it, China's producing it now. It's no longer just you know cotton T-shirts and plastic toys. Um, yeah. So so Russia can actually you know the renminbi they they um, they earn they can actually buy stuff, especially now that you know Western companies can't sell their goods in Russia. So you know I might if I'm a rich Russian I may want to buy a BMW and an Apple phone. But tough, I can't. So I'm going to buy a BYD car and a Huawei telephone because that's what's available. Um, so, and this is India's problem. India's first problem is India doesn't really produce goods that people really want. Uh, so, so that's your the, India's first challenge. Now, the second thing China does is it says, look, you can buy government bonds or you can buy corporate bonds. Uh, and here we have like a deep liquid market um, where foreigners can now participate. And so if you have too many renminbi, you know, buy bonds. And if you still don't like that, then you can take your renminbi to the Shanghai Gold Exchange uh, and buy gold there. Um, and so all of a sudden, if you're Russia, trading in renminbi is a no-brainer. You have like all sorts of things you can do with your, your renminbi. Now, you know, what can they do with what can you do with your rupees? Uh, to be honest, with your rupees, you go to Bali and either you buy real estate in Bali or you just have yourself a very nice holiday. Um, and same with the same with the Thai bot. You go to Phuket and you have a great holiday there. Uh, and by the way, they are doing that. You go to Phuket today, it's like Russia town. Uh, and same in Bali. You go to Bali today, Russians everywhere. I was there, um, yeah, nine months ago. That was absolutely the case. Oh, you are? Yeah, yeah, oh, you yeah. are okay. Yeah. yeah, no, no, it's like in in Phuket or in Bali. We were in Uluwatu uh, in Bali. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The uh, are you a surfer? A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah. No. So like, yeah, Russian tons of Russians everywhere. Now, India, you could say, well, you can go to Goa, etc., but it's not exactly the same vibe, and foreigners can't really buy property there, right? Um, it's, no, it's like, very hard. It, it's an odd transaction. Yeah, you can't buy property in India. You, you can't buy property in India. Yeah. Oh, okay. but, but yeah, no, in Indonesia, you're not supposed to buy property, but you can, there's, there's workarounds, you can buy through company structures and yeah, you can, you can at least buy leases. Um, okay. So, but in India, in India, it's not that you don't even have that option. So yeah, I think India's missing, missing um, a great opportunity there. And, you know, for now, I think Russia is still, you know, it's a little bit on the ropes. So it, it wants to sell its oil to India, it wants to sell its iron ore, so it's still taking the rupees. But at some point, it will say, you know what, I don't want to trade with you anymore. Yeah, it's when you walk through this, I find myself wondering, is this India's problem yet? Because right now it seems like a Russian problem, right? Absolutely. And yep. eventually it may become an Indian problem because uh, maybe there's enough buyers of Russian gas, oil and gas, especially if they can That's convert right. to gold. And, you know, the, the gold I think it's a Russian... I think it's too, sorry to interrupt. I think right now it's a Russian problem and an Indian opportunity. Sure. Uh, yes. And, and it's been a Russian problem and a Chinese opportunity. And I think China has been quite good at capitalizing on this opportunity. Hence announcements like, okay, we'll sell more to the Chinese and we'll even sell them at, at half the price. Um, and, you know, Lavrov came and gave a clear warning to India, look, like sort, sort it out or we're going to do less with you. And if India ignores it, they're just going to do less. Yes. Okay. Now you you made a comment. Um, you said the U.S. has been you know a unipo unipolar power for about twenty five years, or they had been, right? And and we're sorry. Is it a given now, from your perspective, that we're in a multipolar world, or or is this still a question mark to you? 
No, I think uh, we're, we're increasingly in a multipolar world. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, look, you, you see this, uh, the first place you see this is trade flows. You know, 25 years ago, the U.S. was pretty much any country's number one trade partner. Today, China is, you know, very often most countries' number one trade partner. Uh, so you, you've already had a, a big shift in in trade flows. Um, you're, you know, you're seeing a shift when, when you look at where global trade is growing. It's all emerging market to emerging market, uh, and you know, I, it's it's also pretty obvious that you know the world since the Ukraine Ukrainian invasion, the world has sort of split between a Western alliance that you know to some extent has come out of this this Ukraine war reinforced. Uh, and the rest of the world that looks at the Western alliance with a lot of skepticism um, and the rest of the world that, you know, perhaps no longer sees the United States as the shining city on the hill. Um, you know, I think if you were in Thailand and if you were in Saudi Arabia uh, and if you were in South Africa, I think you always look to the U.S. and always thought, these guys are the smartest guys in the room. You know, these guys, they've, they've got it together. And this, you know, these were the days of the Washington consensus. So, you know, you looked at the guys who worked at the U.S. Treasury, at the Fed, et cetera, and you thought, wow, these guys, you know, they really have it together. Uh, but following everything that's happened in the past couple of decades, you know, I would say that the various U.S. policy mistakes, you know, in, invasion of Iraq, terrible policy mistake, Afghanistan, complete shambles, um, you know, letting Americans' banks first get massively overextended and then letting them go bust in 2008. Um, you know, it, it's if you're sitting and looking at this from Indonesia, from Thailand, etc., you no longer think these guys are the smartest guys in the room at all. Um, and and so, yeah, the, I, I think the the perception has shifted dramatically. Okay, so then... On the back of that, um, you know, in, in the rise of an empire, as as I understand it, Louis, you know, often what we see at the super early stages is a surge in investment in education, right? This usually turns into uh, a surge in innovation and technology development, making that nation more competitive. This leads to, um, you know, greater percentage of trade, global trade, and eventually, um, you know, more influence, et cetera. Um, so what's your, let, let me back up here. What's your take if you were to step back and say in the long cycle of the U.S. empire, when you think through previous empires like the British, the Dutch, the Spanish, et cetera, and then you maybe take what you know about the rise and fall of those empires and lay them over top of the current state of the United States empire, what inning would you say that we're in right now? I don't know. Yeah. I always fall back on Adam Smith's quote that there's there's a lot of ruin in a nation. Um, I think we first have to acknowledge that, you know, when you look at, at the U.S. in terms of its geopolitical positioning, in terms of its access to commodities, uh, the U.S. starts with pocket aces. You know, they they just have the the U.S. comparative advantage are so great relative to pretty much any nation out there, you know, they can't be invaded by anybody. Um, geographically, the United States is, you know, crisscrossed by rivers that you can navigate. It's got huge advantages of geography. Um, 
and it's you know self-sufficient energetically, self-sufficient in food. Uh, it's got so many things going for it that um, it's you know to think that oh we're we're coming to the end of of America to to me seems far fetched. What what we are what we are coming to is the end of the unipolar moment um, where you know we had 25 30 years where again culturally economically militarily you know on every front the us was so far dominant above everybody else like like the people didn't even question it was just so far so the us was so far ahead on everything and you mentioned education and and, and that was another one where the U.S. was, you know, so far ahead, and you know, you could say, well, you know, U.S. universities are still the the number one universities in the world. You know, like who wouldn't want to go to Harvard or Stanford um, or Princeton or any one of these? Uh, and that's undeniably true. And these universities continue to attract some of the world's top talent. Um, but at the same time, you could argue that you know, U.S. universities are not the the beacons of freedom that they used to be. The, the the you know places where you could debate and discuss anything um in fact quite quite the contrary you know within the broader american societies uh a lot of the the, the campuses in in the us are now amongst the least free places in the us it's amongst the places where speech is the most controlled it's among the places where you know employees are actually the most afraid of stepping out of of bounds of uh, it, so it's gone 180 degrees. And against this, you know, if if you look at China now, China produces every year more engineers than the U.S. has. Um, and that's including the engineers that the U.S. produces for China, because so many of the engineers, <laughs> most you, you go you go to an engineering school at uh, any major college campus in the U.S. and about half half of the kids will be Indian and half of the kids will be Chinese. Um, so you know, I'm uh, sorry, long-winded answer. You don't want to completely write off the U.S., but I think you have to acknowledge that we're coming to the end of the unipolar moment. Okay. I think that's a super pragmatic answer. I appreciate that because uh, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I interview so many uh, guests from call it the precious metal space. There's a lot of doom and gloom forecasts, <laughs> right? Like I got to yeah. keep my, uh, my guards up to make sure I'm not just developing a bias. Well, look, if you're, if you're selling precious metals, you're selling fear, right? Absolutely, it's, you are. Uh, Absolutely, you are. And yeah. I often, I often quote the the parable of the talents. I, you know, when, when, I don't know if you know this parable that Jesus gives. Uh, he has three servants. Well, the master has three servants. He gives ten talents to the first one, who goes out, starts a business, and everything goes well. And the master congratulates him and tells him to, you know, keep the money and. Uh, sends him on his way. The next guy lends the money out. Uh, the lend, you know, he's got five talents. He lends the money out, and the master ends up taking the capital back and the interest, and says, "Okay, that's fine." And the third guy is so worried that he buries the talent. He says, "You know, I, I don't want to lose it, so I, I bury the talent." <laughs> and when the master comes back, I give it back. And that guy, the master punishes. So sure. it's interesting because it's a profoundly capitalist view. Of how the system works in the middle of of the of the Bible, but you know, in this, the gold bug is the guy who buries the talent. He's the guy who has money and says, "Ooh, I want to keep yeah. what I have, yeah, and yeah. I want to make sure that I, that I get to keep it." When really, our job as capitalists should be, "How do I grow the system?" 
Uh, that that's where, always where we should start off. Not how do I keep what I have, but how do I grow it? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic parable. I'm going to have to look that up. And uh, readers are probably going to see that in my Sunday newsletter. <laughs> 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 Sounds like a good one. All right, so so let's uh, let's jump back to uh, U.S. dominance moving to a multipolar world. You know, we're we're kind of seeing the term deglobalization gets thrown around a lot right now. Admittedly, I throw it around a lot right now. And you know, I want to get your take on this because I know you don't like that term. You've got some different perspective. I want to talk about if we were to like super high level, maybe um, discuss how the world is dividing. It, it's almost like there's two blocks. And, you know, one interesting way to, to, to sort of draw that divide would be two thirds of the world condemned the Russian invasion, one third abstained or did not condemn it. And, and that's one way of dividing the, the globe right now into what looks like two competitive trading blocks. Now, that's sort of a quick and dirty explanation. Do you uh, see if it you that look way? At, if, you, if you look in terms of global population, I don't think it was two thirds, one third. It was more one quarter, three quarters. Um, the whole global South basically said, look, this is in our fight. Uh, we want, like, we want nothing to do with it. So, you know, interesting China take. Yeah, and, absolutely. Okay. It's, it, it was the Western world, which is roughly, a, let's say a quarter of the global population and three quarters of the global population was like, yeah, you know, countries like Brazil and Mexico that are, you know, allies of the United States, you know, they, they, they didn't vote. They didn't vote in the UN. They just abstained. So yeah, I think most 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 of the global South was like, yeah, not not my fight. Uh, and frankly, now you could say it was very cynical from countries like India. You know, a country like India was quite transparent. Said, hey, if I can get cheap oil out of this, of course I'm going to do it. So, and and same story with Brazil, like getting cheap fertilizer. So there might have been a cynical element to it, but yeah, um, or strategic. Now, to your I mean point, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, I, like Modi was op openly said, um, I'm elected to help in Indians in India. Yes. So anything I can do to help, I'm going to do it. Uh, yeah. You know, that's my job. Uh, yeah. And yeah, you know, it's tough for Ukrainians, but I wasn't elected to help Ukrainians. Um, yeah. So you could say it's very cynical, but you know, that's I guess, you know, the when you're a poor country, you don't have some of the moral luxuries that perhaps richer countries have. Um, now, to, to your point on deglobalization, I don't know if what we're seeing is as much deglobalization as much as designification. That's that's the term I like to use because what we've really seen is an attempt by the Western world to isolate China, to say, look, we, we can't be depend as dependent on China as as we've been um, for geopolitical reasons, for economic reasons, for all sorts of reasons. We, we have to basically cut the links. Um, and... You know, I think that uh, when I you know, this this attempt to designify um, is actually being terrific news for a lot of other emerging markets. You've seen, you know, factories leave China for Vietnam, for Indonesia, for Thailand, for Mexico. Um, now, you know, I would argue that it's been crumbs that have been falling off of China's table. But that if you're a Vietnam, you can have a feast off of these crumbs. Um, and and so it's been a key driver of the unfolding boom you're seeing right now in emerging markets. Um, I think one of, one of the more interesting development that nobody talks about is you have all those recession signs in China, all the recession signs in Europe, growing recession signs in the US. Uh, meanwhile, Latin America is booming. 
The Middle East is booming. India is booming. Southeast Asia is booming. Um, and there, there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them we've already mentioned, the fact that these countries can now you know, fund their commodity needs in their own currencies. And that removes a massive constraint to their growth. Uh, another is designification. Every factory that leaves China for Vietnam is a, is a boom for Vietnam. So, uh, you, you know, the, these trends are there. They're, they're very strong. Um, and, you know, point, point towards a, a continuing boom in emerging markets. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, I like that take. I was looking today and I can't recall the number, uh, but the percent of foreign direct investment in China has dropped over the last 18 months. And uh, that's a huge piece of pie to be divided up between, you know, Indonesia and, and Vietnam, et cetera. Um, now I'm seeing a lot of, uh, I don't know how to describe, what would you say? I'm seeing a lot of um, interesting strategic moves in terms of mineral exports right now from some of those countries as well, like Indonesia, they've had a copper ban, a nickel ban in place yep. uh, for a few months now. They're, they're pushing forward a copper ban as well. Uh, Malaysia, just announced they're going to be banning the export of rare earths. You know, is this, what, what do you make of these developments? Because I look at it and I'm like, the world's kind of shifting into a bit of a commodity war, right? And and um, the supply chain of any raw material that any country needs is suddenly uncertain. And so anybody who controls those raw materials is going to look for leverage right now. But what do you make of, of these developments, Louis? Look, I, I agree 100% with what you say. We, we're entering a world with much more geopolitical uncertainty. We're entering a world with, uh, you know, geopolitical tensions and a new Cold War. I mean, I, I don't think I think we can say it. And, you know, with that comes a need to, to secure your own supply chain and on every almost everything, but commodities first and foremost. Um, and so, you know, at first, that's that's quite inflationary, uh, of course, for, for the world. If everybody needs to, you know, if we forego the productivity gains that we had on sharing everything and on optimizing everything all the time. We forego this for security, for increased security. That means more inventories. That means more capital tied up. That means lower productivity. Uh, that's that's the world that, that we're in. Uh, absolutely. Um, and yeah, you know, countries that have access to commodities will be, I think, in, in a better spot than those that don't. Yeah. And that, yeah, you know that's that's why I think if you're if you're Europe today, you're you're in a tough bind. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, which which simultaneously makes me very optimistic. You and I are both in Canada today, uh, very optimistic on the future of Canada. It's a country laden with so many of the resources that the world needs, and when leveraged productively, you know, we for example came through the 2008 crisis with a healthier balance sheet than any other. GA nation as a consequence of our, our resource economy. Um, one yeah, thing all I'm, you need is the all you need is the political will to to exploit this. Um, yes, and I think you need the political will to exploit this domestically, uh, which I would argue has perhaps been lacking in recent years. And you need the political will to exploit this on the other side of the border because that's the your obvious yeah. market for it. Um, yeah. And there, you know, frankly, the 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 U.S. needs to to realize that it can't, you know, pick fights all over the world and at the same time poke Canada in the eye like it did by by pulling the Keystone Pipeline. It's here you have, you know, a country that's your friend that shares all the same values with whom you can do business. It's like it's such a no-brainer, um, but yet 
you do everything you can, it seems like, to prevent commodity extraction in that country. It's madness. Well, I imagine as the supply of raw materials from Russia and China becomes increasingly unavailable to Americans, yeah. the supply of raw materials from Canada will climb in value. Yeah, they'll have to. They have yeah, to. Yeah. They have to. Right. Yeah. Yep. Right. And our economy is, you know, relatively work in tandem, which yeah, yeah. sort of supports your, your, I don't want to call it bullish uh, sentiment towards the US, but your anti doom and gloom thesis. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. Okay. So, so maybe pulling off of that, what, what is the competitive advantage of the United States today? You know, is it their technology and innovation competitiveness? Is it the military? Um, you know, is it just the world reserve currency? Like, what is the, the strongest um, pillar right now in the United States? Look, the, the strongest pillar of, of the United States has always been that the U.S. has the world's reserve currency, um, that so much of the global trade, so much of uh, global savings, so much of global working capital happens in U.S. dollars. Um, and even with crazy fiscal and monetary policies as the U.S. has had in recent years, even with that, you know, the U.S. dollar remains the U.S. dollar. Um, and, and to undermine that now, you know, I, I do believe we've started a period of de-dollarization, but de-dollarization, it's not a date. It's not a, a particular event per se. It's, it's a process and it's a very slow moving process at that. Um, so yes, more of the trade around the world is moving away from the dollar, but a dollar remains a dollar and, and that remains the big, the big comparative advantage in the U.S. Um, uh, of the U.S. Now, this isn't to belittle the fact that the U.S. has great universities. It's not to belittle the fact that the U.S. has, you know, great corporate structures, CEOs. Um, you know, some people argue that one of the best comparative advantage of the U.S. is the Chapter 11 rule. That you know, the U.S. has a whole history of uh, transferring assets from weak hands to strong hands. That you know, people can go bankrupt in the U.S. and start again. And, you know, undeniably, that's also true. That That's also a strength. You have a, a whole capitalistic ecosystem in the U.S. that's been put together over hundreds of years uh, or the past, really, the past hundred years, um, which allows the U.S. to deal with crisis decently, quickly, and move on. Uh, transfer asset from one set, one weekend to, to strong hands and and keep the keep the show on the road. Um, so there's the U.S. does have a, a, a lot of advantages. Um, I, I don't want to belittle that. Yeah. Um, the question is, you know, are those advantages improving or deteriorating? Because you know, markets are made at the margin, um, and I would argue that you know, at, at the margin, a lot of the decisions taken in in the past couple decades have been uh, on, you know, perhaps on the wrong side. I mean, look, for, first of all, I, I really appreciate your pragmatic take on the uh, where we may or may not be in the cycle of the U.S. empire. And it's it's important because YouTube, podcasts, newsletter writers, when the doom and gloom narrative sells really, really well, it's super sticky, it's seductive. And the thing about like crash predictions, I don't know if you've noticed this, Louie, I'm sure you have. You don't, you never have to be right, right? If you're selling a crash as a prediction, people gravitate towards it. And if it doesn't materialize, they forget about it the next day. But if you're right, even if you're right once every 10 years, you're heralded as an oracle, right? Like the so-and-so who saw the XYZ crash well, coming. It's, it's the know. profit syndrome. You know, every, every, everybody wants to be a prophet. Um, you, you run around announcing the end of the world, but the reality is, you know, when, when you manage money, and you know, at Gafka, we do manage money. Um, 
it's hard to make money on the end of the world. Uh, yeah. More importantly, managing money, and this is true, you know, when you're betting on a crash, you know, to use a baseball analogy, in essence, you're saying I'm going to hit a home run. You know, you're you're going to bat and you're pointing at the bleachers, saying I'm going to hit a home run. But the reality of money management is most of the time you're just trying to get onto the onto base. Uh, and money management is first and foremost about hitting singles. You know, you hit singles, you hit singles, you hit singles, you get on base, you get on base. And every now and then you get a fat pitch and then then you can whack it, whack the, the cover off the ball. But that doesn't happen that often. Uh, now, having said all this, I do want to highlight that we're now in the phase of the cycle where mortgage rates are going up and where gasoline prices are going up. Uh, and if you look back through history and you look back at periods where mortgage rates have gone up 250 basis points or more and where gasoline prices have gone up 30% or more in 12 months, it's, yeah, it, it's not a lot of happy outcomes. It's not a lot of happy days. This is a tough combo, higher interest rates and higher gasoline prices. And again, like I don't I don't want to be all doom and gloomish and predicting a crash, et cetera. But I think we we have to acknowledge that making money in an environment of rising mortgage rates, rising gasoline prices is not easy. Um, and I'm sorry to mix my sporting analogies, but you know, money management, I just said it was baseball. It can also be American football where you have an offensive team and a defensive team. And, you know, when you have rising gasoline prices, rising mortgage rates, I think you want to have the defensive team on the pitch more than on the field, more than, um, more than the offensive team. Yeah, that's, that's a good, uh, actually segue to the, the last topic I want to cover here, which is, you know, I was going to ask you that outright, are you playing offense or defense right now? Because, you know, sure, we're getting away from the, the fall of the empire, but we've probably got some rough times ahead for some of the reasons you discussed. And a lot of the, you know, I don't want to um, minimize a lot of the micro issues that we're seeing right now, like record credit card delinquency, uh, the auto loan bubble is now the second largest in the United States. Um, yeah, I'm not so familiar with the United States housing market, but, but in Canada, it's something now like 38 billion in mortgages that are reverse amortized. So they're actually, they owe more with each payment they make because of the increase in rates. Um, and there's a lot of this. Well, I would say, I would say all this is a symptom, right? Um, the, the underlying ills are the rising gasoline prices and the rising mortgage rates. Yes. The, Symptoms, the way it appears is credit card defaults and auto loan yeah. defaults. And it's uh, th th those are the symptom of the underlying problem, I think. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, that's great perspective, actually. So, so talk to me about your defensive strategy right now and uh, um, where you got capital so, allocated. What are you looking at? Yeah. So, that's a, that's a tough one, right? Because historically, you know, for the past 35 years, you could say, oh, well, things are tough. I'll go out and buy a U.S. 30-year treasury and uh, and I'm off to Bali to go surfing. Uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll wait this one out. Thank you very much. Um, the problem is bonds no longer do their job. Um, it's been three years now, you know, we're looking at a third uh, year in a row where 10-year U.S. treasuries are going to be losing money. Um, Bonds are no longer the anti-fragile building block around which you can build a portfolio. And I think you and I discussed this uh, six months ago already. But the the simple reality is uh, bonds are not doing their job because we've moved from a structurally deflationary environment to a structurally inflationary environment. And you know, in a world that's where you have structural inflation, 
finding portfolio cushions to protect your portfolio. You know, again, maybe you like Microsoft, maybe you like Alibaba, maybe you like LVMH. There's like so many great companies out there that you can invest in. Uh, but how do you protect a shark against a shock against those? Um, what I've been telling all our clients and what I'm doing in my own portfolio is I think the new anti-fragile asset class is basically the broader energy complex. Um, and that uh, the real risk today to our markets is that gasoline prices continue to creep higher. The real risk to our system is that oil prices go to 150 bucks. Uh, if that happens, equity markets implode, bond markets implode, and you get another 2022 where you're losing money on both equities and bonds. So the, today the real hedge for portfolios is, is energy. Um, and, and I would say, you know, on that front, you know, energy in Canada, if, our take on geopolitics is right, that at some point the US will have to embrace Canada more than it has, uh, you could get a, a pretty nice re-rating on a lot of Canadian energy names. So so that'd be one place uh, you, you could look. Um, you know, how, how do you hedge against inflation? I think the experience of the 1970s beyond energy uh, was that you want to own currencies that are structurally strong, currencies that have the ability to take the inflation hit by re-rating. So, you know, in the 1970s, if you held Japanese bonds, if you had German bonds, if you had Swiss bonds, you actually did very well. Um, today, you know, there forget, don't go out and buy a Swiss bond, don't go out and buy JGB and don't go buy a German bond. Um, the new bond markets that are performing well amidst this inflationary environment are in Brazil, they're in Indonesia, they're in India, uh, they're in Chile and Mexico, or even in China. You know, in Chile, they now call, I was there recently, they call the, the, the Bank of Mexico, they call it the Bundesito for Bundesbank, because, you know, the, the central banks that now follow proper monetary policies and the ministries of finance that now proper, follow proper fiscal policies are no longer in the West. They're in the South. Um, it's countries like Mexico, like Brazil. So if you're dead inclined because you, you don't want too much volatility, if you're worried about volatility, then I would say buy EM debt. Um, and whether in Asia or in Latin America, and you know, that's, yeah. So that's how I, today that I've been adding money into Latin American debt personally and buying more energy. Okay. Interesting. And you mentioned Southeast Asia as well, a couple of times. Absolutely. Okay, very cool. You know, we're we're putting roots down in, in Indonesia, more so than just visiting last year. We're going back this year for an extended period of time. Uh I'm not putting it's roots down. Place. Yeah, I it's love a great Indonesia. place. It's a great place. I love Indonesia. I've like I've been I've been a structural bull on Indonesia for the past 20 years, you know. I mean mm. currency I mean back then the currency was more undervalued and bond yields were much higher. Um I've held Indonesian government bonds for the longest time. I've, I've loved them as an asset class. Um, but yeah, Indonesia is, I think it's a terrific place. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, great for kids too. Especially I got if you're a surfer. Super young ones. Yeah. And and uh, <laughs> Uluwati's got some very steady waves. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. Look, Lou, I want to thank you for for coming on and pointing everybody to, uh, to GavCal Research. So it's just research.gavcal.com. It'll be in the show notes. You can buy one of Louis's nine books up there in addition to a handful of other things. Um, anywhere else we could point people today, Louis, or anything you want to share about your work? Uh, well, we, we have a, you know, we have a private wealth arm called Evergreen Gafcal. 
Um, and, you know, we have free newsletters for for sort of because our, our gafcal.com is sort of more institutional investor focused. Um, it's really a product aimed at institutional investors, but we have a more sort of retail arm uh, with uh, our evergreen gafcal. So if I would say if you're institutional, go to gafcal.com. If you're more, uh, if you're not institutional, uh, check us out at Evergreen Gafcal. Evergreen Gafcal. Okay. Thanks again, Louis. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. My pleasure. Good to see you. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.